The title of the message is Being Triumphant in Trials. Uh, here we are in James chapter 1. We're going to focus in upon verse 1 down to verse 7. And I want to begin with the perspective that really is based upon the authority of the book of James, particularly this first chapter, these first few verses here. And it's a very, very important one. And, and that is this. Look, if you're going through tough times, if you're going through a trial, uh, you need to know that you are not alone, for one thing, and you are also not unknown. And this is so important to underscore, because if you feel that you are alone, i.e. no one can relate to what you're going through, or you feel you are unknown, that no one knows what you're going through, it makes the trial far worse. In fact, one of the chief reasons for the anxiety that we see in our culture, which is only rising, even though our culture is more connected technologically, um, but it's actually creating more isolation, is this idea and this reality that no one knows me. I mean, I'm known on Instagram, but no one really knows what I'm going through. I don't know why it is, but, and I think, but I do think I have some reasons for this. But when I was a younger man going through challenges and trials and uh, in leadership and personally and things, I, I used to kind of think, man, I, I feel like I'm the only person going through this, which of course was not the case. But then I learned, hey, I'm not the only one going through particular opposition or trials or difficulties. And as a result, knowing that others were actually in the boat of a particular challenge actually was a comfort to me. It was strengthening to me. It was even protecting. You know, the, the objective, interesting, or the strategy that the author of the book of Hebrews had. You say, well, Greg, you're in James. I, I know, we're going to get to it in just a little bit, but a little introduction. The Hebrew writer was speaking, actually, to those who were going through a really tough time, Jewish followers of Jesus, and they were terribly discouraged, which means they had low strength and uh, didn't, they didn't have a lot of strength. And so how does he encourage them? How does he encourage them to keep moving forward? Here's what he does. It kind of in the name of the fact that we're not alone and, and we're not unknown, he actually brings to their mind the biggest names in history. So he wants to uplift them, like they're really going through it. So what is he, how does he lift up people who are discouraged? Well, he brings to mind, to them, the greatest names of history, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses. And, and then in the next chapter, he calls these guys and the gals too and Sarah and others, these cloud of witnesses, the patriarchs and matriarchs in history, who loved the Lord, who walked by faith, who did what was right, but they experienced incredible trials and difficulties, and yet they were doing the right thing. And so in chapter 12, I'm referring to our walk and relationship with the Lord as a race. He says, look, you guys, I want you to remember Abraham, and I want you to remember Sarah, and I want you to remember Noah and Joseph and all these patriarchs and matriarchs of old, because you are not alone in your struggle. You're not alone. He brought us, you're not alone, and you're not actually unknown as well. And I want these individuals to speak into your life to persevere because Jesus came to make us right with God, but it's the Father who actually trains us 
in righteousness. And what's critical is that we persevere, we keep moving forward. And then the Hebrew writer actually brought Jesus into the picture, who obviously our precious Lord suffered, which is an understatement. I mean, he, he just like shamed the reality of the cross. I mean, for the joy that was set before him, he endured it. And there's even evidence that the Lord actually feels what we are going through. How do you explain? How do you explain Acts 7? And, and that is that you have the young Stephen taken out of the city of Jerusalem. And who is there but Saul, who later became Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is B.C., before he embraced Jesus as Messiah. And they're stoning Stephen to death. Stephen has this vision of ultimate reality, which is Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, but he's not sitting, he's standing and why is he standing? Well, that's a great question. I, I, I can't help but think that he was, he was fully engaged. He fully understood what was going on in Stephen's life. Some even argue there was a sympathetic resonance. In other words, the Lord watching the stoning of the first martyr in the church, he actually felt what he was going through. So he couldn't take it sitting down. He stood up. And speaking of the fact he's fully engaged and a sympathetic resonance, well, the idea is if you put a piano up here on one side of the stage and another one on the other side and you struck the A chord in one you know, piano, it would actually make the A chord in the other piano come alive. There would be this sympathetic resonance. But there's more. Think of how the Lord designed our bodies when there is trauma in our body, blood rushes to that area to bring healing. And similarly, when you are suffering, it's like the father, like he's in the room. In fact, the scripture says that his strength is actually made perfect in weakness. So I just want to say right off the bat, you're not alone. Can I hear an amen to that? You're not alone and you're actually, actually not unknown. And this is doubly underscored actually in the book of James. It is a book written by the half-brother of Jesus, same mother, different father, one of the great leaders in Jerusalem, one of my most favorite books. I mentioned that earlier. And he's pinning what Bible scholars believe was the first New Testament book that was written. And what is the first subject he addresses? Trials. It's interesting. Well, why? We'll talk about context in just a little bit because this audience is experiencing tough times. And it says in verse two, we're going to come back to this, but I just want to introduce this idea first. Uh, it says, my brethren, in verse two, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. There's a strong likelihood when you first hear that, maybe some of you are hearing it for the first time, you're thinking, count it joy when you fall into trials? And you're thinking, man, that's a hard thing to wrap my mind around the right interpretation is probably not how you're thinking about it, to be honest with you. It's so critical that we get this right. If you look at the word count there, it actually speaks of mental muscle. It's a word that speaks of being pressed down upon your mind like you're working a mathematical problem. And in context, it means you'll need to think of trials in a different way. Not that you feel good about them, as if, 
like, you know, you're skipping down Main Street at Disneyland, like yippity-doo-dah, yippity-yay, you know? I'm going through a trial, and so the Lord just wants me to be happy about it. And just put a smile on because this, I'm suffering, or there's leukemia, there's cancer, there's this or that divorce. It's like, hey, count it joy, man. Be happy. That's actually not what he's saying. No, the joy is actually how the Lord salvages trials. I mean, the Lord Jesus is the king of reclamation. He's the king of renewal. James is saying, man, I just want you to know, it's like the Lord knows your difficulties and tough times. You're you're not alone and you're not unknown. And the Lord is with you and he's a great redeemer. Yeah, and he takes lemons and he makes lemonade. And it's like, and, and this is the first point actually, being triumphant in trials is to know, and you can write this down in your notes because we don't have it projected, but it says, just fill in here, Jesus is the king of reclamation and renewal. Nothing is too hard for him. Can I hear an amen to that? Hey, look, think about the Lord himself who suffered, who like willingly stepped into Jerusalem on Passover, major opposition. By the way, our Lord's suffering was smack dab in the will of God. You can suffer and be in God's will for sure. He's experienced opposition and hardship. He did. And and what did the Lord do? Well, he endured the shame of the cross. And what resulted was the greatest healing and wholeness to the world. So the Lord knows something about taking hardship, opposition, even ungodliness and injury, and, and by his grace, making something beautiful out of it. It's not that the injury is beautiful, but he is the king of renewal. Be encouraged with that. Now, the reason James is actually addressing trials, what's obvious is because the audience that he's communicating to is experiencing them. And it tells us once again, we're all in this actually together. Here's context. Go back up to verse one. We don't have it again projected on the screen this week, but look at verse one. Um, The book begins with the author identifying himself, James, or Yaakov, Jacob, the half-brother of Jesus, who he identifies himself as a bondservant. A bondservant is a servant who has given full allegiance by choice. So in other words, he's not being paid for this. He's not under some duress, outside pressure to give allegiance to his brother as Lord, as the supreme one, which is incredible. And this first statement is so powerful in in its apologetic Because what is being communicated is the half-brother of Jesus, who at one time did not actually embrace his brother as Messiah, is actually going on record to say, I am a full-on servant. I've given my full allegiance to my brother, to my half-brother, and I identify him as Lord Jesus Messiah. No small thing. And that was a process he went through to arrive to that conclusion, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that what convinced his half-brother James that his half-brother Jesus was the Messiah and the Lord was the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Now this Jacob, James, it could be said, actually embodies the calling and purpose of the nation of Israel because you have a Jew who believes and follows Jesus, the Messiah. Beautiful thing. 
In addition, it reminds us of the fact that the Jesus movement was actually a Jewish movement. Or as Edith Schaefer says, Christianity is Jewish history. In addition to that, I just love hovering over this, Jacob or James, bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, one day. I mean, just look at the name James there. Think of Jacob. Think of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One day, all Israel will be saved. All Israel will say, we are bondservants of Yeshua, Messiah, and Lord. Can I hear a big amen to that? I love it. He's leading the way. Yeah, you can clap. I think it's a good thing to clap about. Let us clap, everyone. Yes. Oh, yeah, it's true. Now watch this context. We're still talking about it. Is the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And 12 tribes are kind of code terminology for ethnic Israel. Scattered abroad, code for diazapor, dispersion outside of Israel. So he's speaking to a Jewish audience outside of the bounds of the nation of Israel geographically. Now, the beautiful thing about our generation is we're seeing this diazapora uh, actually uh, erased in a way, in the sense that you have Jews who are returning back. There's been major uh, aliyah back to the land of Israel, which is actually setting the stage for the kingdom, which is actually the chief theme of Scripture. All of that is, it leads us to the background of why the first issue is trials, because that's what he's addressing. And I want you to jump to chapter 5. Look at chapter 5 real quickly, because he gives some insight to the kind of trials that they were experiencing. And it says in chapter 5, verse 1, James is writing and he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. The cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. And you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You've fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You've condemned, you've murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now, that's some of the most graphic language in, in the scriptures. It's, it's prophetic-like. What is going on? Here's the context, seriously. You have Jewish followers of Jesus who are amidst the Diazipora, who are working hard, who are being ripped off by their owners. Some are even being put to death. The context of the trials that we're talking about in James is just that. So you have fraud going on. You have people getting beaten up. You have people taking advantage of. You have even people being put to death. That's the context of the trials in the book of James. Now, let me just ask you a personal question. What's the context of your life? Because the reality is trials are not a matter of if, but a matter of when. And I just say this, trials come in many shapes and different sizes. You know, what can be a trial to one person may not be to another. You know, the other day I, I, was, I was with my precious bride, Stephanie, and I noticed there was a bruise on her arm. And it was just like, whoa, mom, where did you get that bruise? She said, well, I just bumped into the wall, you know, a little bit. And so, okay, and it just resulted in this bruise, right? Now, for me, I bumped into a wall, you know. I mean, I don't get a bruise like that. I mean, but the point is, 
Um, are you guys tracking with me on this point? The point is, what can be an injury to one may not be, for example, to another. But, but trials are a bummer. And they're, they take us out of our comfort zone. They're painful. Sometimes it's because expectations are not met, some loss, injustice, misunderstanding. And it may not even be a reason or that's, that it's some fault of your own. I mean, I think of the disciples getting in the boat. Jesus said, go on the other side. They did, and they faced this incredible storm. The beautiful picture is Jesus came to them amidst their struggle. I want to go back to verse 2, you guys. Check out verse 2. My brother, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And the context is to think differently, primarily about how God redeems trials. Again, to the first point that the Lord is the king of reclamation and renewal. But being triumphant in trials, and this is point number two, and you can fill this out in your outline, is God uses adversity to actually change the way we think. And and that's a good thing. While he continues to change us and grow our lives. Hey, part of our growth is learning to think differently. You know, there's been studies that basically we think in patterns and that on a daily basis, most people, their thinking is just repeats from the day prior. So adversity and trials, actually, the Lord is saying amidst them, I want you to think differently. It's primarily, I want you to think differently about trials. And we're going to get specifically to the point. But changing the way you think is good. Sometimes we're waiting for circumstances to change when actually the Lord wants to change us. And I told this story a while back. I just love it so much. I read it in the Jerusalem Post. It was about a man by the name of Avi Yoren. He's called Mr. Innovator. Long story short, Avi's in a motorcycle in Jerusalem. He gets in an accident. They take him to Hadassah or whatever the exact details were. And um, he's in hospital. The doctors come to him and say, Avi, you know, we checked you out. Everything's good when it comes to the motorcycle thing. But Avi, we have some bad news because when we took, you know, an x-ray of your head and stuff, well, we need to tell you, you have a brain tumor. I mean, you're okay when it comes to the motorcycle thing, but you got a brain tumor. And um, we just don't have the technology to be able to reach that part of your brain. Well, what did Avi do? He actually started a company called Vision Ease, Vision Sense. And he spent almost a decade developing a type of operating scope modeled after the structure of an insect's eye. So he's thinking, hey, the technology doesn't exist to bring healing to this brain tumor in my life. So I'm going to work on the solution myself because I'd like to be healed. And he did. And that ended up resulting in a successful operation. His trial caused him to think differently that brought the solution. How are we to think differently about trials? You guys, check this out. Now, let's think really biblically here. The answer is found in verse 3. How we're to think about it is that it's a testing of our faith. How does that strike you? You know, if you drop the term test to me, I'm like, oh, no. I mean, if it's something physical, I'd feel more confident about it. But a test implies, 
You know, you ought to have some prior knowledge if you're going to be successful in that time and space and giving right answer, whether it's cerebral or doing something physical, whatever the test is. But the nature of a test is that you're moving from something that you know to something that then you are experiencing. The nature of a test moves you from just knowing about something to experiencing what you know. So look up here for a second. You guys, look, if I were to ask you, hey, do you know God loves you? It's like, yes. Do you know that he's with you? Like, really, in the room. I mean, he's with you. He's as much with you as he was, you know, Peter and Paul and Mary and Joanna. Do you believe that? Let's all say yes. Yeah, totally. I know that. He promised never to leave me nor forsake me. Well, let me just ask you this. Do you know that he promised to provide our needs, not our greeds, but our needs? You know, he promised, Hebrews 13, 5, the Lord will never leave us. He's given us not the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Listen, when we go through trials, the test isn't so much, hey man, how strong are you? The test actually gives opportunity to experience how strong God is. It gives opportunity to experience who he is, the faithfulness of who he is afresh. Because faith has an object. The faith that we have is in the true and living God who created the entire universe. So it isn't so much about, hey, how strong are you amidst this trial? This is a test of your faith. This is a test of what you know to be true. This is going to give opportunity to experience the fresh the Lord is with you, that he provides, that he works all things out for the good. And that's what we need to think when we go through trials. That's the way he wants to change the way we think. So therefore, here's point number three. Actually, God uses adversity to test our faith, okay, which never fails because our faith is in God who never fails. Can I hear another big amen to that? Look at verse three, you guys. The testing of your faith produces patience. Well, the word patience comes from two words, under and pressure. So to be patient is to be under the pressure rather than bailing or running. Like, look, when we're in adversity, it speaks of being outside of our comfort zone. Who likes to be in a place that's uncomfortable? Our natural inclination is, I want out. I want to bail. I just want to bail on the job. I want to bail and, you know, I want to get on another road because the highway's a bummer. I want to bail on this. I want to bail on that. I want to bail on a godly attitude and maybe bail on, unfortunately, God. I want to bail on a family. I, I want out. I do not like this uncomfortable place that I'm in. But what the Lord is saying here in verse four, you want to let patience, which carries the idea of being under pressure, have its complete work. It's perfect work, which speaks to the fact that a perfecting, completing work in our life can only take place, okay, with adversity. Or let me say it again, say it differently. Adversity or trials is a part of that equation in a big way to a completing work in our life because he says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Like if the Apostle Paul were here and I'd say, hey, Paul, you know, you've been through a lot, shipwreck, a beat, and all kinds of things, a lot of trials and difficulties. So here, here's, what I, here's what I hear, Paul. You know, I hear they're going to kill you. Here's Paul's response. Well, to die is game. It's like, you know, um, it's like, to be frank with you, I've been through trials. I've learned just to trust the Lord. 
I've learned that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Hey, Paul, here, this is what I heard. I actually, they're, they're, they're not going to kill you. They're, they're just they're going to let you live. Great. To live is Christ. Well, actually, Paul, you know, I, I hear they're going to like beat the sweat out of you. You're going to be persecuted. Okay, well, um, you know, sharing in the fellowship of Christ's suffering, it's because of the godly witness of Jesus. I live in a broken world. That's why there's opposition. And, and as I mentioned earlier, hey, I've learned to be content no matter what situation I'm in, that there is a God sufficiency, so I'm going to trust him. You know, Paul, actually, I, I heard that they're just going to leave you in jail. I mean, you're just gonna, you're going to be in jail for a long time. Okay, well, you know what, I'll... I'll write some letters and stuff. I'll write some letters that will impact 2,000 years of history, you know? It's like, but here's the thing. The point is, is like, look, the Lord wants us to remain under the pressure of trust. Don't bail. There's a perfecting, completing work that he wants to accomplish, which is what it gets to point four. God actually grows our lives and matures us amidst adversity so that we are not puppets being controlled by our feelings and circumstances. Boy, that's really big. I mean, we have a great father. And guess what? He just doesn't want us to be a stinking slave to our feelings and our circumstances. He doesn't want us to be a puppet that we're just manipulated by how we feel and manipulated by our circumstances. And therefore, you can see that perseverance, stickability, staying power is so critical. So see trials, how? Think differently. The Lord is, is always wanting us to grow. And a part of that is to learn to think differently, particularly about trials. There's a perfecting work being accomplished. He wants to work perseverance. So you're not a puppet controlled by your feelings and your circumstances. Hey, you know, the best part of this passage, in my opinion, is the fact that the Lord promised to meet us in an incredible way when we com communicate with him and when we pray. The passage promises that the Lord will meet us in, in, in tough time and guarantee to help and provide wisdom. And he wants us to live confidently about this very fact, that he is fully engaged. So in other words, it's like, oh man, this is really tough. Lord, I would, Father, would you help me? And behind the gospel is a father. And we're going to get to the passage in just a little bit. But he wants us confident that if we bring our burden, like, Lord, give me wisdom. What's wisdom? Give me right perspective, right outlook. Give me right outlook here. What's the right application? What's the next step that would honor and glorify you? Wisdom is the right application in life. How to live righteously. That, that he guarantees he will answer that prayer. So to me, the, the best thing about the potential of trials, triumphing in trials, is our Father is fully engaged and it gives opportunity for us to go to him. And he wants us to. You know, prayer speaks of intimacy. It speaks of relationship. It speaks of dependency. And that's a great place to be. Can I hear another amen to that? Look, look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, well, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, tossed 
by the wind, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know, you know in some ways, when I read this, I, 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 and I've thought this in times past, I don't think it's so much at this time, but I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe you're like me, maybe hearing this for the first time, that it's like, Lord, gosh, if, when you're in the midst of trial and and you're promising that if I go vertical in prayer, you'll provide wisdom, you'll meet me, you'll help me to be confident in that. But if I'm not actually confident in my prayer that you're going to answer that, don't expect to receive anything. That sounds kind of peevish, Lord. It sounds kind of small on your part because, you know, if I could just be transparent, out there, when you're going through it, man, your head is spinning. When you're going through a trial and stuff, your head is spinning. <laughs> Your emotions are all over the place. Here's what's being emphasized. The Lord is just saying, look, I want you to be confident. You bring this concern to me. I'm going to meet you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you wisdom. I don't want you, let me just paraphrase this, to be like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. He doesn't want us to be like that because a wave of the sea is without rest. And he wants us to experience rest. I was listening to a great message last night by Ben Corson on K-Wave um, 107.9 at 7 o'clock. And uh, anyways, I was listening to him. And um, he was just talking about trials and things, right? And, and depression and the various things. And, and so he's just marking uh, like the various times in which there's, there were trials or storms. And what is the Lord? What, what is the Lord doing? The Lord is actually, he's either up on the mountain, hanging out, watching the disciples, knowing that they're going to make it to the other end, not stressing, or you find him asleep. He's like usually, he's like, he's either napping or he's hanging out on a hill and he's not stressed. I love that picture because it's true. And, and as difficult as it can be when we're amidst trials and our emotions are going crazy, he does not want us to be like a wave tossed around without rest because that's, that's the doubter. Or the wave of the sea is unstable, and so is the doubter. And the sea is driven by winds, and so is the doubter. And the wave of the sea is capable of great destruction, so is the doubter. So the Lord is saying, ask and be confident. And jump down to verse 17, you guys. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He's perfectly holy. He is innately good. So number five, being triumphant in trials. If you're going to jot this down, just a one kind of an answer here. There's a little blank, but it says, but here's the point. God uses adversity to draw us closer to the father in prayer, who is the one who guarantees an answer to our cry, Lord, give me wisdom. And I actually believe, and we're almost done here, that inherent within the passage itself is an example of the kind of wisdom that he gives, which is found in verse 9, 10, and 11. So in other words, like uh, he says in verse 9, let the lowly brother exalt in his exaltation, or let, his, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. What is he saying? Well, if you're going through a trial and like you are being challenged materially, the right outlook is, man, spend some time rejoicing in your incredible wealth in being positionally right with the Heavenly Father in the Son. That is wisdom. Now, suffering like physically, suffering materially. Okay, look, hey, spend some time exalting 
in your position and the wealth of your position in the Lord. Can I hear a big amen to that? Hey, that requires some inner management, lay hold of your thinking. And then he says, um, well, verse 10, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat that it withers the grass, its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. What is the wisdom? Well, if you're rich materially, hey, be realistic. Because there's only so, so many things that last forever. What lasts forever is the man of God, the woman of God, the people of God, the word of God, the love of God, the will of God, the love of God. So like, do not put your hope in things that are breaking down. That is wisdom. Instead, you too exalt in what your position is, which is right relationship with the Lord. You know, if you jump down to verse 21, I, I, I want us to check this out. This is all context. I just love it. Um, actually, look at verse 21. We're almost done. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Look up here for a second. So in other words, like the word that we just studied, the Bible study that we just had, um, and there's that other aspect to it in chapter one. You have trials, which we fall into that happen unexpectedly. It's not a matter of if or when. But then there's temptation, which is a process, which involves a lure and a hook. Uh, that's an enticement drawn into some type of compromise and corruption. Okay, what he's saying is, man, you, you got to receive, receive this word that you just heard about trials. Receive it. Receive it, okay? It's able to save your soul. I'm not talking about like salvation in terms of heaven or hell, but you receive this word that we just gave on triumphing in trials and your soul, your intellectual life, your emotional life, your inner life will prosper will save you, will be a rescue to your soul. And then he says in verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourself. A lot of times that's taken out of context, used in other contexts, which is fine. But in context, he's talking about being a doer of the word that we just heard on trials. Are you guys with me on that? Good stuff. Now watch this. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Well, that's just like not smart. We need to remember we're king's kids. Remember fathers at play. Remember that he's a redeemer of trials. But watch this, verse 25. He who looks into the perfect or complete law, Torah, instruction of liberty. Ooh, I love it. Of freedom and continues in it, is not a, and not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Oh, yay. So church family, rise. Be blessed. Be blessed in triumphing by the grace of God and the power of God amidst the tough times that you are experiencing at this time in your life. Let us be doers of the word. 
Can I hear an amen to that? Okay, now, you guys, hey. So, hey, because we didn't put these on the screens and because we're launching home groups and because you need to know the answers, okay, I, I want to actually go over these points because I may have gone quick. So if you have your notes and you're going to participate in home group, you'd like to like know what the main points were, I, I, which is fantastic. Here's point number one. You need to fill in uh, the answer, reclamation and renewal, right? Which is just the king of redemption, reclamation and renewal. But that's the answer. Um, and then point number two, just want to make sure you have it, is you need to fill in, the. it's the word think. So just number two, write think. God uses adversity to change the way we think. And then, let's see, number three was, here it is, thank you, test. God uses adversity to test our faith, but faith has an object, which is the Lord. So it gives opportunity, of course, to experience his faithfulness. I love that. Oh, I love that. Love that. Love that point. Point number four, fill in, make sure puppets, you know, so we're not little slaves to our feelings and circumstances. That's the answer is puppets. And then point number five, the answer is father, right? God uses adversity to draw us closer to the father in prayer. Hey, let's all stand, you guys, at this time.